January 7, 1761. It is a cold and sunny day in Dublin. The wind is razor sharp and refuses to come at reliable intervals. It's as if Mother Nature wants to keep you on your toes. It's the kind of day that, from inside a warm room with a mug of coffee in hand, looks beautiful and inviting. But looks can be deceiving. A crowd has begun to form around the gallows in St. Stephen's Green, which at this time of year fails to live up to its title. The cold wind rips through conversations like a knife. And though they were all here to see the same thing, Every person in the crowd independently wonders if they will be able to stomach what's about to happen. Would it be gruesome? Would it be peaceful? Would it be violent and full of struggle? No matter what, it would be memorable to say the least. For weeks there had been murmurs of scandal. What had Darkie Kelly done to her child? How could she hope to contend with a man known to most as the King of Hell? Was it so hard to believe that a little black magic might have seeped into our minds through the whiskey when the keeper of the town's secrets went up against the teller of its lies? Today looked like any other winter day in Dublin, but it sounded like the first breaths of an argument. It felt like static shocks were being carried along on that damned impulsive wind. It smelled like wet ink and three-day-old fruit, and it tasted metallic like the moment after you bite down on your tongue. Today, Copper Alley would mourn its best mistress, and wives the town over would breathe a slow sigh. Today is a sad day for vandals and misfits. Today, Darkie Kelly was going to die. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. It's time once again for our annual St. Patrick's Day shenanigans. Yay! Yay! If you've been with us from the beginning, you will know that for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, (laughs) we latched on to the St. Patty's Day stuff very early in our podcasting days. And we had so much fun exploring the darker side of Ireland and Irish folklore and legends that it just kind of stuck around. First, we brought about Bridget Clary and the Changelings, and then it was the Jameson Cannibal Incident last year where we first started saying, bring me a boy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And this year, we will be telling you the twisted tale of Darkie Kelly, a woman hanged and burned alive for murder most foul and dalliances with the devil. Mm. Darkie had the last laugh, though, but more on that later. I love her name. It is pretty, isn't it? Yeah. It's short for something, which we'll get to later, but I know. It's very interesting. It's like, what if I named my child Darkie? Wouldn't wouldn't go well. No. Nope. Has too many horrible negative connotations now. I know. Be like a dark storm's a-brewing. 
<laughs> and speaking of dalliances with the devil, I did try to make a deal with him for our eternal youth and beauty. Oh, thank you. Like I promised, of course. But he refuses to return my calls. Oh, what is his problem? You know, I think he's probably very busy with Florida at the moment. Mm. You know. Just always in Florida. Always. So I decided to back off for the time being and try an alternate method. And this one is far less likely to land us in the town square on fire. Mm. So that's good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It has been said, I've heard, that increasing one's intake of, what is it called again? Leslie. Validation. That's right. Can reverse the signs of aging in just minutes. <gasps> and lucky you out there in Fiendland, you can provide this magical ingredient. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, good news! You can, ha you can have it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can support us over on Patreon. I have to have fun. I say this every week. <laughs> For just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to a ton of extra content, including our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, and all of our past mini-sodes and episodes of our additional patrons-only podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies. You'll get a little gift from us in the mail, um, opportunities to Zoom live with me and Leslie. You have one coming up this week. Hey, hey. Mm -hmm. An on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all of that is a little much for you, you can simply share anything we post on our social media to your social media. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Like or comment on literally anything we do. We really need to appease the algorithm wizards to fall into anyone's line of vision. For sure. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor, tell the Uber driver that you hire this weekend if you plan to go out because it's a jungle out there and we want you to be safe. What's their name, Leslie? Who's our Uber driver? Fernando. Fernando. Mm -hmm. Nice. Then your friends and Fernando can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Wonderful. In his Uber. Yeah. Fernando, he's a great Uber driver. Five stars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. Lastly, don't forget about our live-streamed St. Patrick's Day Campfire Stories event. It's happening this Thursday, which is actually St. Patrick's Day proper. It's the first time we've, I think we've been able to do that, which is super fun. Uh, patrons will get the chance to make soda bread virtually with us and our friend John Radicasa at 8 o'clock. And then everyone is invited to the party at 9 over on YouTube for our Irish spooky version of Two Truths and a Lie. Ooh. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. We had so much fun with that last time. Yeah. And this time... We thought we would try to invite some of our past guests to tune in if they're able to, so you may get a chance to talk to them in the comments as well. So it's all going to be really fun. We're going to have some cocktails or mocktails if you so desire. We're going to eat some soda bread. We're going to tell some stories and some lies, and it's going to be really fun. Mm, yeah, like so it. come hang out with us for St. Patrick's Day. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, actually, yes. What I is do. it? Okay. What is it? So this... I was just reminded of it as oh we were God. as we were talking about Fernando, the Uber driver. It's happening. Um, so I don't know if you told me this or if I learned this from somebody else, but how dare you learn anything from anyone else? I don't know if I was in a conversation with somebody and I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about this. But um water bottles in Uber cars, mm -hmm. you're not supposed to drink them anymore because there's been cases of people like using a needle to inject it with stuff and then girls passing out in the cars. So here's the thing. I never would have because I would have always been afraid of that because I have yeah. a perpetual fear of being drugged in some way. Yeah. Because I saw it on 2020 when I was like eight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't think about I would have thought about it if I was alone, but um I've mostly always been in a car with somebody else mm-hmm. or done like the share rides too. Mm-hmm. But no, I've always been in there with like a friendly face. Yeah, I don't know. I also, Fernando would not do that Never. because I do know Fernando and he is a lovely man. There you go. <laughs> Based on a true story and yeah. Leslie's experience. <laughs> but yeah, so you're not supposed to actually do that. Yeah, guys, like don't take drinks from anyone basically, but like, mm. you know. Yeah. So that's my PSA for this week. So much valuable information. I like it. Uh, then, if that's what we have for this week, then on with the show. So originally, I was drawn to this case because it involves a murder that happens on St. Patrick's Day and is one of the strangest executions I have ever heard of. Mm. So, little did I know, however, that this story would lead me down a path to so much more. As is the case with all super old legends, this story has a lot of elements of truth to it. Actually, it has a lot more than most legends do, but these elements have just been twisted and rearranged over time for dramatic effect. So, here's what we're going to do this week. First, I'm going to tell you the legend flat out. This will be the story as it is told around campfire stories and on bar stools all over Ireland, fact for fact. But it's going to be my version, so there will probably be a lot more adjectives. Okay. Yeah, you know I love a describing word. For sure. Then we'll break down what really happened in the story piece by piece. And trust me when I tell you the truth is like so much crazier than the (laughs) legend is. I was very surprised. So let us start with a legend. And I might use my Irish voice for this. I I pulled our... um, (laughs) Our Facebook group, I was like, oh, should I do the accent? Because I know I did it in the Jack the Ripper monologues and stuff. That's fun. But this is like a little bit longer than I anticipated. So it might have to go on for a really long time. Um, But maybe, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see how it feels naturally. I write really late at night sometimes. So things that seem like a good idea at 2 a.m. sometimes don't seem like a good idea at 1.30 in the afternoon. Don't explain yourself. Just do it. Guys, this is what Leslie's here for. <laughs> Don't say you're sorry. Make it happen. Make it happen. Just do it. This is what you've trained for. <laughs> this Literally. This is the moment. <laughs> Here's what I'll do. We're going to give it a try, and if I need to stop doing it because it's too much, we're just going to stop. Deal. Also, it's going to sound like the guy in the back of the bar. Do you remember last year when we did, yeah. we were talking about be- being in the, um, where were we? We were in the Jameson distillery, yeah. and I, I was the creepy guy in the back of the yeah. bar. Imagine it's that same guy. Okay. Let's let's have him also be like a bar owner. Great. And he's timeless. Okay. He exists all throughout history. He's a time traveler. All right. Okay. Imagine we are in an old Irish pub. It's closing time, but we've been having an excellent chat with the barman, so he suggests that we stay for another round after he locks the door on the house. Everyone knows this is the best time in a bar ever. To die. No, we're not going to die. Oh, okay. It's fine. Just, right. just to have a good time. <laughs> okay. All the best secrets come out. Yes. The stools go up on top of the bar and the lights go down. He lights a cigarette because that's always when you can smoke in the bar too, mm-hmm. or at least it was when I was a, a young, <laughs> stupid smoker, and tells us that we might not believe this, but this pub is haunted by the angry spirit of its original owner. We absolutely do believe this because the pub is hundreds of years old and we're both kind of ghosty people. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm there. So we settle in and ask what happened. 
The pub owner goes on. You may not know this, but before this building was a public house, it served another purpose. Back in the mid-1700s, 1746 to be precise, this was Darkie Kelly's Maiden Tower, a brothel that served many of the highest-ranking men in the area, and more than a few of the lowest. Darkie herself was the owner and madam, but that didn't mean she hadn't done her time in the trenches, so to speak. When Darkie purchased this building, she took a more managerial position, keeping a blessed few clients of her own. Over the years, those clients dwindled down to one, a man known throughout Dublin as the King of Hell. We gasp. <gasps> a man of many titles was the King of Hell, the Sheriff of Dublin for one, the Earl of Carhampton for another, but most knew him by his God-given name, Simon Luttrell. Dun, dun, dun. Simon was a married man, but he had his vices, more than a few of them, actually. One was the drink and violence, but mostly it was women. Simon Luttrell strayed from the path more than he stayed on it. He spent many a night with young ladies of the evening and a few of the unconsenting daytime, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, we all know what you mean, bar guy. Creep from the Jameson place. (laughs) Simon wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. But he was a member of the nobility and head of the Dublin police. And so his extracurricular activities were never to be spoken of. Of all the women Simon paid visits to, Darkie Kelly was the most consistent. You might even say the two were engaged in an affair. But one can only carry on in such a way for so long in a day and age where birth control did not exist, before one of the little suckers takes hold. And so it did. Hmm. And Darkie Kelly found herself with child. Now, Darkie was no fool. She knew that this was not a good thing. Simon Luttrell could not have the illegitimate child of a notorious whore bearing his name and walking the streets of his city. But Darkie had come up with a plan. I do not use the word whore. This is in creative writing. So Mm -hmm. just FYI, Mm -hmm. they would have at the time. She told Simon about the baby and he was furious. Most women would simply tell the world the baby belonged to someone else or go into hiding until they gave birth and hand the baby over to someone else to raise it. But not Darkie. She wasn't going down without a fight. She told Simon that if he wanted her to keep the identity of her child's father a secret, He would have to pay, and not once, but continuously. Should he miss a payment, well, she would have no choice but to spill her secret and ruin his reputation and marriage, leaving him and his family name a disgrace. Simon Luttrell, the King of Hell and Sheriff of Dublin, was enraged. He said that she would never see a red cent of his money, and that if she breathed a word of this to anyone, She would pay dearly for her actions. But Simon Luttrell, Earl of Carhampton, King of Hell and Sheriff of Dublin was not done with Darkie Kelly and her unborn child. Oh no. When the time came that the child was born, Simon Luttrell paid Darkie Kelly a visit under cover of darkness and dragged both her and her newborn babe into the woods. Once there, he murdered the infant and burned its innocent body in sacrifice to the devil himself and Darkie Kelly was sent back to her tower. When the sun rose the next day, Simon Luttrell was set about the second half of his plan. 
he told every busybody in town that Darky Kelly was a witch. She had bewitched him into sleeping with her, and in turn she had gotten pregnant with his child. Then she took the child out into the woods and sacrificed it in a blood ritual for the devil. The town was scandalised. Simon Luttrell knew exactly who to tell to turn this tiny little spark of a rumour into a roaring blaze. Do you know who he told? Who? Wives. <gasps> Local women whose husbands had frequented Darkie's establishment and betrayed the sanctity of their marriages. Women who hated Darkie and her girls and would gladly see her burn for a crime they had no assurances she had actually committed. Because women are the worst to other women. Right. Hysteria bubbled up around them. The women of Dublin called for Darkie's blood. Eventually, Darkie was rounded up and brought into the courthouse. Though the body of her infant was never found, Darkie was found guilty of witchcraft and murder and sentenced to die in a manner befitting both. Witchcraft and wizardry. I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was that Darkie Kelly was taken to the gallows, where the hangman bound her hands and fitted her neck with a noose. Six loops for a woman at the time. And there she was hanged until unconscious, then burned at the stake until dead. Once her charred remains had satisfied the howling crowd, Darkie Kelly was set to be buried under the gallows. But the girls would not let her go down like that. They snatched her body up and took it back to the Maiden Tower where they had set up a wake. With authorities in hot pursuit, the Maiden Tower was stormed and Darkie's body was reclaimed. While they were there, the sheriff's men decided to take a little look around. As it turns out, Darkie Kelly had one more secret to reveal. In the basement, boarded up in the walls, the police discovered the long dead bodies of five men. Had they executed a witch that day? Or had they discovered Ireland's first serial killer? Dun-dun-dun! <gasps> oh my! I know. Pour me another. All right. <laughs> Irish bar creep pours you another. <laughs> that one's going to stick around. I did the whole thing with you the voice. You did it. You did it pretty effortlessly. Man, like, thank yeah. you. So, yeah, that is the legend of Darkie Kelly. Uh, and there's one little footnote that I found pretty interesting. Um, people at the time wondered, like, but what of this child that Darkie Kelly is said to have given birth to? The whole scandal is that there's a baby, right? And there was no evidence of this baby. There was no evidence of its murder. They said it was burned up in the woods. They found no fire, no body. Where could this baby have gone? Well, there to, is also... Florida. With the devil. With the devil. He was like, thanks, guys! <laughs> <laughs> and they went away happily. No, there's also a kind of interesting footnote alternate explanation. So, at the time when this all took place, the church near St. Saint, Saint Stephen's Green was the location of something called a foundling wheel. A foundling wheel is a very interesting thing. It is a wooden cylinder placed in a church window. So this would be just like an open hole type window. They're not, they don't have anything else covering them. And the cylinder is open on one side and like a barrel almost on the other. And it's on a lazy Susan. So it spins. And the opening is just big enough to put a newborn baby into. So if a woman had a child under duress or had a child she could not care for, what she would do is go to the foundling wheel put her baby in the little receptacle, spin it so that the open side was now in the church and the baby was technically inside the church. Mm -hmm. Then she would ring a bell that had been attached to the outside of it to notify the clergy. 
And since it was in the church, it had become the church's responsibility. Right. And then they would take care of the child. Yeah, which is actually like, it's not, not a bad thing. These, yeah. It was hard for some women to take care of uh, of their children, and especially in situations where there was sex work involved, that was that was a thing. So if she did have this mysterious baby, she could have just left it as property of the church, and the church was then bound to keep its identity secret. It was just a mm-hmm. ward of the church at that point. Right. Would it have gone on to a happy life? Probably not. The church usually sent them off to workhouses and the like. They were not usually adopted out to loving families, but still the, the baby lived and maybe was able to overcome its obstacles later. Another interesting thing about a foundling wheel is that it was, it was the predecessor to modern baby boxes, which actually still exist in a lot of countries. Right. Not as much in the United States, although maybe we should have them, to be quite honest. These are like insulated. They're in the side of a building, usually like a hospital or, or church still. Mm-hmm. And or fire department. Or fire department. And now they're like heated or they're like climate-controlled little boxes, almost incubators. Sounds nice. Lovely. And it has the little, like, you know, baby tray, that little clear tray that you put a baby in when they're born and, like, blankets and stuff. And you can put your baby in and walk away. And those today, they are now attached to sensors. So they'll just, like, alert people and they'll come and take care of the baby. But back then, all you had was a bell. Yeah. And a lot of times women would leave their babies under cover of darkness because you didn't want to see, have anyone to see you leaving your child in the foundling wheel. The whole idea was that no one knew you had a child ever. It was just a secret. You also were gambling on if there were clergy close enough to the bell in the middle of the night to find your child, or if your child, if there wasn't, would survive till morning. Mm -hmm. So also kind of a risky endeavor, but possible. And I thought that was like a little, a a bit of an interesting footnote. So if she could have, if she had actually given birth to a mystery infant, Darkie Kelly could have easily left it with the church. Now that's the whole story as it is told by most, which is pretty nuts, right? You can see why it drew me in. But there's like a lot to unpack there. Right, yeah. It's an interesting story. (laughs) Yeah. First of all, more of it is real than I thought. Second, it is based on the stories of not one or two, but three women Mm. who were kind of braided together by a common bond. And that bond is the building the Maiden Tower, the grounds of which now support Darkie Kelly's pub. Oh. Yeah. Another place that I would love to go to in Ireland. So it's looking like I have to go to Ireland. We have to. We have to go. Plan a trip. Let's go. Great. We're going to go to the Jameson place mm-hmm. and Darkie Kelly's pub. Okay. Is that it? Is that all we have? So I mean, and then a lot of other places. Right. But also, Darkie Kelly, as we said, it's a, like a pretty name, but it's kind of odd and off color. You don't really hear that, Darkie. But it was an abbreviation, as it turns out, to a much more common one at the time. Our titular madam uh, was actually born Dorcas Kelly in Dublin, Ireland, and she was not executed in 1746, as local legends sometimes report, but it was a bit later in 1761. Dorcas. Love it. I would go by Darkie, too. Yeah. That's not- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would be like, no, no, call me Dorcas. Yeah. I like that one better. <laughs> Darkie did, however, own a brothel on the flags of Copper Alley called the Maiden Tower. Um, and this name, the Maiden Tower, actually comes from an old Turkish le- legend that you're going to love. Okay. In this story, the emperor has a beloved daughter. And when she was just a small child, an oracle tells this emperor that his daughter will be bitten by a snake and Ugh. die before her 18th birthday. Fucking snake. Ugh. This whole thing is very Sleeping Beauty. It makes me wonder a little. The emperor, then mad with grief, sends his daughter to live high atop a tower where snakes could not get to her. Yes. And there she stayed for years and years. Anyone wishing to see the princess would have to go to see her in this tower. 
One day, the princess received a delivery that was a basket of fruit. She reached into the basket to pull out a piece and was fatally bitten <laughs> by an asp who had snuck in in the fruit. Mm -hmm. The princess was just a few days shy of her 18th birthday. The name, the Maiden Tower, and the Maiden Tower is actually, it's called the Maiden's Tower, is a real place you can go see it. It's really beautiful. Right. But the name would indicate to clients of Darkie Kelly's that her girls were both young and virginal. <laughs> a quality most men of the time really liked in their sex workers for a lot of reasons. Right. It was also a joke because Darkie's girls were neither young nor virginal. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> so She's like, look at my maidens. They were like, like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I love that image. Yeah. Like, oh, where? Are, oh. oh, I guess I'm here now. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'll take the youngest one. What is she, 34? <laughs> <laughs> That's like almost dead. Yeah. <laughs> also, a maiden head is a slang term for a hymen. Another thing men of the time found nice in their sex workers. Yeah. So gross. Gross. Anyway, I just thought that was a little interesting bit of information. I feel like I remember reading that Turkish tale when I, we were doing the fairy tale. Oh, it's possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was like reading some backgrounds because I remember a couple of them were Turkish backgrounds Yeah, too. I thought that was really interesting. And that sounded familiar with it. And the, there might be – I didn't go into it really hard. There might be some clout to that legend because the, the tower is a real place. Yeah. And the emperor was a real person. So, mm -hmm. you know, it very well could have happened. Uh, and if anybody wants to look it up and tell us, be our guest. We love to hear it. Be our guest. Be our guest. There you go. <laughs> That's French. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyway, before we get into the meat of this story, Leslie, how about you set the stage for us a little? Tell us what Ireland was like at this time. If you can. Oh, man. Ireland was rough. It was wild. It was there was having, a lot going on. It was having a time. It really was. 20 years earlier, in 1741, Ireland was dealing with a famine. And this is just like one of the many things it was dealing God, with. God, I know. Uh, and this caused poverty levels to rise and nothing was getting better and everyone was mad and it caused the peasants to get all riled up and they started to get real violent. Oh, man. Secret societies were popping up all over the place for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah. This one called themselves the Patriots, and they mainly wanted freedom from the British Parliament and to eventually be a self-ruling Irish Protestant nation. And that was a big deal. The, yeah. the, the nation was kind of separated into, like, Dublin Castle people and then, like, people who wanted an Ireland for the mm -hmm. citizens. Yeah. Um, and they had a lot of things to say, but there were also a lot of violence and destruction involved. Mm, of course, as there is in any, like, rebellion revolution situation. Yeah, they were like, listen to my fists. Boom. Ooh. And you were just like, all right, I'll listen. But they weren't listening. Um, also at this time, the large number of impoverished people who had farms weren't keeping up with maintenance and the growing and like growing of their crops because the British Parliament was assessing the value of each piece of land. Oh, shit. And so if the farm was thriving, the value would go up and so would the tenant's cost. <gasps> So they couldn't afford it. So they were like, we just can't do any work. And so there was already this famine happening. Oh, my gosh. And now the farmers also weren't farming. So there just was, like, no food. Oh, no. Yeah. And this would also cause, obviously, more health risks, mm -hmm. um, more deaths were happening. And, uh, yeah, it was just their, like, numbers were going down at this point in time. And though the Patriots were fighting for the Irish people— they were leaving out a large group that no one seemed to like or care about, which were the Catholics. Uh, so 
He just Funny worked. that. We always associate Irish people with Catholicism. Yeah. That's, I know. That's what I was like thinking. And I was like, oh, yeah. They, they were just like still mad at them. Those identifying as Catholic had already lost all their rights to own land and vote, and no one seemed to care or want them around. Some of the farmers would give pieces of their lands to the Catholic families to help keep them running, but also like share the costs right. of these lands. Uh, but once things evened out and the farmers were able to expand with having cattle, they told the Catholics, like, thanks for taking care of the property, but you can like go now. Get out of here, Catholics. <laughs> yeah. The Catholics were starting to hear stories about America and how it's a place for those who are fleeing religious persecution. Unfortunately, when they'd get there, they weren't wanted here either. Nope. (laughs) So uh, the population in Ireland, especially the southern portion, which is what we are talking about. This also, you know, it includes Dublin, Mm -hmm. was fairly low. They had lost 400,000 to dysentery. In the 1740s, and the famine caused a high rate in childbirth deaths and deaths due to malnutrition. But around 1761, which is where we are now, and the years to follow, the farmers were able to, like, start growing again. They had um, livestock and cattle, like, all over their farms. So um, they were—everyone was getting healthier, and they were getting busy, so the population was rising. Okay, (laughs) Ireland. And it would it would um like go over double over like the next couple dec uh, few decades, um and they weren't out of the struggle just yet, but at least there was some food to be had. Well, that's good. Yeah, and also around this time in 1759, a man named Arthur Guinness signed a nine thousand <gasps> year lease for a dilapidated building in Dublin and Who started. Who the hell drafts a nine thousand year right? lease? I know. That's insane. I know. Get he out didn't of here. Even spend that much on it. It's wild. Get out of here, Guinness. And he started brewing a stout beer that we obviously know now as Guinness. Uh, And Guinness would become Ireland's largest brewery in 1838 and is still the world's largest brewer of stout beers today. I like a Guinness. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. I think that it wasn't until the 1770s that it, like, was brought to the the bars. Really? And then it was in, in Dublin and in London. Interesting. That's where you could drink it. And they still only have just like their three main beers. They haven't really. I didn't even know they had more than one beer. They're all kind of the same. They're just like slightly brewed differently, but they're all stouts. Mm. I like a Guinness. Yeah, it's good. Although I know in Ireland they drink them warm. Yes. Yes. Like they drink everything warm there. Can't get behind that. I need cold beer. I forget why. Isn't there like a reason? It has to do, it's probably uh, like energy savings. They're not using ice as much. I and... don't, I have no idea, but now I have to look it up because I have to know that. Yeah, there, there is a, a reason that they've just always done that. It's like an American thing that we drink everything cold. Yeah. I mean, it's healthier. Your body doesn't have to work as hard to like. Yes. Um, despite popular belief, warm Guinness is, is not an Irish tradition. Well, there you go, Holly. Yeah, they do serve it cold. <laughs> it's fuck off. All right. So that was a, a rumor we fell right into. Oh, man. It is meant to be poured cold into a room temperature glass. Ah. So there's no reason. So I like, how I always have it. I li- Yeah, same. Same. <laughs> I'm sure we'll drink some Guinnesses um, during our live that you should all attend on the 17th. Yes. At 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock. Get in March there. 17th. It's going to be so 9 fun. 9 p.m. At 9 p.m. Not in the morning. Don't, I won't be there. No, we're not going to be drinking Guinnesses in the morning. 
I mean, we could. No shade if you are on St. Patrick's Day. Maybe you have to start very early. I don't know what your day's like. I don't know what your fasting and eating windows are. (laughs) Maybe you worked overnight and that that is evening to you. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe you don't live in the confines of our time zones. Maybe you don't. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. Okay. Way to think outside the box. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's Ireland in the 1760s. There is a lot about the Irish rebellion that we could go into too. Mm-hmm. But as Leslie said, it's but basically like any revolution or rebellion you'll encounter where there are loyalists to the crown. And then mm-hmm. there are also people who think that Ireland should be an independent nation. Mm-hmm. And the loyalists to the crown are located in this case in Dublin Castle. So a lot of times when you read about it, you will hear people that are associated with the castle. Mm-hmm. being like, you know, the man. Mm-hmm. And then the peasants or citizens, whatever you want to call them, are like the opposing faction. Right. And that's why, too, so if you look up a uh, a map of North and South Ireland, mm-hmm. so mainly this problem was happening like in the southern portion, which is the majority of yeah. Ireland. But a lot of people in the north, they weren't having to deal with this as much. And they were, like, just seeing kind of, like, right. this fight that was going on. They were still dealing with some of it. But this was mostly, like, the southerners having, like, this big fight. All right. Well, another interesting um, little tidbit about that that's going to come back into play in a little bit is that because this, you know, uprising was not something the castle wanted, obviously, mm-hmm. and they wanted to kind of squash it where it was and not see it spread – They didn't really like people talking about it. Right. So they set about taking control of as many newspapers as possible Mm -hmm. so that what they could do was filter all facts through their people and Mm -hmm. make sure that what was actually happening did not get released to the public. Yeah. But people knew about it and they were like, oh, that's a mess over there. They did, for sure. Mm -hmm. But that fact is going to come back. Mm -hmm. So just remember. Oh, there was was like a political, like comedy – like a satire mm-hmm. that was like written, I think, in one of the newspapers or like a book that was like kind of banned. Oh my gosh. And this guy Goodness. wrote about how, um, because again, they, they essentially had a 1% there. Yeah, for and, sure. They did. It, yeah. They were like leftover nobility. These were yeah. talking about like earls and lords mm-hmm. and things like that. So they were saying how because there was this famine and like they're in the farmers couldn't grow their crops and all mm-hmm. this other stuff, they were like, you know, they should just be eating these like poor people's babies because it would be saving both of them. <gasps> <laughs> That's what the foundling wheel really yeah. was. Yeah. It was a rotisserie. Yeah, there you go. Just kidding, guys. Nobody cooks and eats babies. That's yeah. terrible. Don't eat babies. Don't do it. They do help with validation sometimes, but. Yeah, but like they live. Yeah. We wouldn't actually <laughs> we just, hurt them. We're only taking a little bit of their Like blood. a little bit. <laughs> There's no way to make that good. Anyway. No. Where's a <laughs> What are we talking about? <laughs> Darkie Kelly, who ran a business in Dublin at this point in time. And she ran a brothel that was like an accredited brothel. I know that we're going to go on to talk more about this later, but she did have a legitimate establishment within what they called the Flags of Copper Alley, which was a segment of Dublin that had a lot of like shops and restaurants and public houses. Just like it was like a lively strip where you Mm -hmm. would go for some nightlife. Um, But the flags kind of marked off that section so if you were within the flags of Copperelli, you were in kind of a, like a nicer section. But if you were outside of them, mm, less mm. good. We'll get into talking about that section of town in a little bit. Now, the reason Darkie Kelly's life was brought to an end was actually that she was tried and convicted of garden variety murder. 
According to the Dublin Public Gazette in December of 1760, Dorcas Kelly was tried for the murder of local shoemaker John Dowling. A leprechaun? I, maybe. I mean, if we're going to put our own twist on the story, I would make him a leprechaun. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. Nobody's asking us. <laughs> sorry, continue. According to the prosecution, or whatever they were called at that place and time, a representative of local law enforcement, Darkey had murdered John Dowling on St. Patrick's Day in an altercation. Now, whether she actually did this or not is hard to say, given the fact that there appears to be absolutely no hard evidence. But they didn't really care about evidence back then, so this isn't super surprising. Mm -hmm. And really, at the time, as a woman, the court would not have needed much more than somebody's word that Darkey had committed this crime. Women were second-class citizens unilaterally, but Darkey was also involved in sex work, which, in the eyes of the public, a public chock-full of wives whose husbands patronized her establishment— made her even more unreliable. Mm. And so, Darkey was tried for murder, and originally she pled pregnancy, which is something you could do back then. Okay. They're like, are you guilty or not guilty? I'm, I'm pregnant! pregnant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's actually a really funny and, and not uncommon thing, and this would have been a reason for a stay in her execution because they're not going to kill a woman who's with child. And lots of women actually did this. In fact, famous lady pirates Anne Bonny and Mary Reed famously did exactly the same thing simultaneously in their own trials. Hmm. But Darkie was examined by a jury of matrons and found to be not with child at all. Now, I have discussed this before. Yeah. I can't remember if it was alive or if it was here, so we're just going to go over it again. it was here. I think it was alive. See? We can't tell. Huh. A jury of matrons was a collection of women who would have been paraded in to see if they thought the woman on trial was actually quick with child, which only means that they could feel the movement of the fetus externally. Quickening is the movement of a fetus inside yep. a woman's stomach. So, by the way, the earliest you can really feel a baby kicking externally is around 18 weeks or so. So this is not the best method of confirmation for a pregnancy, but I guess it's all they had at the time. Either way, she was examined by this jury of matrons and declared to be not pregnant. Darkie Kelly was then convicted of murder and sentenced to death by burning. Now let's unpack that. Was she hanged and then burned, just like the story claims? Yeah, she was. But was this special treatment for just her? No. In 18th century Ireland, almost every offense was one worthy of execution. They, like, loved killing people mm. back then. But that was, like, kind of everywhere. Because executions were also entertainment. Yeah, it was just a thing to do. I know. And while men were nearly always hanged, unless their murder was, quote, barbarous. Mm. So you had to be really bad. Uh, and then they were beheaded. But women, that wasn't enough for women. Women needed to be made to suffer first. And burning was not a punishment reserved for witches or heretics. It was merely reserved for women because crowds like to watch them suffer. And were so extra. Well, yeah, you died <laughs> in front of a screaming crowd on fire after dangling yeah. at the end of a rope for 15 minutes. That is as extra as I think it gets. Mm -hmm. So the whole event would have gone down like this. After her conviction, the gallows would have been prepared and Darkie would have been marched down to them. Now, depending on the time of day that her trial occurred, this could have happened immediately after her trial. A lot of times they took them right out. There was no time for an appeal. You, were, you died right then and there. Mm. But if preparations needed to be made or the trial went on later into the evening, it would have happened the next day at first light. And there would have had to have been preparations made because women were not just taken up to the traditional gallows. And so neither was Darkie. No, a different apparatus is laid out for a woman. A large and tall stake had been driven into the ground, and near its base was kindling piled high. 
and in the center of this pile was a small stool about two feet in height. Then Darkie's noose would be nailed to the top of the stake and a chain placed under her arms and around the stake itself. So it's like down by her like waist boobs area and there's like she's like chained to the stake. The noose would have been tied and fitted to her head beforehand, I believe. Well, that's nice at least. Yeah, well, I love it a good fitting. It doesn't fit right, you could get out. So yeah. So then the noose would be nailed to the top of the stake or sometimes um, like tied to two spikes that jutted out of the top of it. So they'd use them to secure okay. the noose. And then Darkie would be placed on top of the stool. The stool would be kicked out from under her and she would dangle there. Now, remember, this is not a long drop hanging. It's short. So the person who is at the end of this noose is going to just strangle, mm-hmm. which is a long and protracted death. It does not Go quickly. In a hanging, ideally, you're going to break somebody's neck. That's not what happened here. Nor was it the goal. The gallows would give you a longer drop, obviously. No, Darkie would hang there for about 15 minutes until she was unconscious. And then they would set, they would have already started setting the kindling on fire when, like, they were doing, they were getting ready for the hanging. So the fire is small and starting, right? Then she's unconscious and they take a piece from the fire and they would set the noose on fire, which would eventually break. And she would drop down and be suspended by the chain under her arms to the stake and into the fire, which Mm. would then consume her. Shit. Yeah. And she's not dead. She's unconscious. And the fact that she's burning alive, there's a good chance she'd wake up somewhere in the middle. Right. How horrible. Yeah. Truly, truly terrible. And this, this would be like a screaming, awful death. Oh, and did I say crowds before? Yes, I think I did. I did. Execution were town, was town-wide entertainment at this time in history because, like I said, there wasn't a lot to do. So the entire town would have gathered to watch this event. Not even just, like, people wandering up to watch. Fruit sellers would prepare and arrive early with their carts, selling their old wares to throw at the victims mm-hmm. and their newer stuff for a snack. Printers, also, who had their shops on this thoroughfare, would set to recording the last words of the executed, then quickly printing it out in pamphlets and selling to selling them to the gathered masses. Yeah. I, I mean, I know you say there wasn't a lot to do, but we absolutely would do that today. I feel like it would be the same thing. Watch an execution? And, like, and people would be out there with, like, churros. <laughs> I mean, if it remained not a horrible thing. If it was thing. a thing. That's what I mean, yeah. It, I but guess. It, I mean, they do. They did it for, they were like outside of Ted Bundy's. Yes, they were. I, I always think about that. But they yeah. were outside the jail. They weren't like watching. I know, but if it was, but you I mean, would have. You they also can. Executions to. have to have witnesses legally in the yeah. United States. So you can still witness an execution. It's just yeah. very traumatic and awful. Yeah, of course it is. You don't want to watch that any yeah. longer. But people back then were like all about it. And men, women, and children would have been in attendance for this. And Darkie's execution was said to be a particularly rowdy affair, with the crowd roaring at deafening decibels. Some of them wanted her head. Some of them wanted to save her. Darkie was a polarizing woman. She was both loved and hated in her time. So you were either someone who had a great time with this lady, who was an independent business owner, making her way in the world, or you, uh, your husband was getting, getting his at her establishment and you hated her. Right. Pretty much. And yes, this is absolutely what happened to every woman criminal. This was not special at the time. That is just a woman sentence. What happened to all of them, which I found wild. Yeah. There is a report of this exact style of execution laid out bit by bit by a man named Edward Kane in volume 43 of Slinkanus Urban, a gentleman's magazine that was popular at that time in London. Now, 
Man, I got that description from from that article. So it's okay. that's how it happened. Now we generally only associate burning with witch hysteria here in America. And um lots of people cast that upon like 1600 Salem, which is wrong, and I will shout about it every damn October when the like that meme that are like the women of Salem burned so we could dance circulates. <laughs> no they fucking didn't. They were hanged amidst mass religious hysteria set off by a bunch of bored little girls because youths are the worst. They are the worst. <sighs> anyway, back to the point. Don't ever say people were burned at the stake in Salem if you don't want to see me irate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Darkie received the style of execution, but no, she had never been accused of witchcraft, nor did she even know Simon Luttrell before even a little bit. So the two of them didn't even know each other. They did exist at the same time, but they were not friends or anything. But wait, there's more before we move on to the other women we owe this story to. After the flames of Darkie Kelly's life had been extinguished, she was taken off the stake and set to be buried under the gallows, which was kind of also commonplace for a criminal to be buried because it's like you're not on hallowed ground and you're not getting a proper burial. So that's just further part of your disgrace and punishment. Mm. Also didn't always happen to men. Right. You know. But Darkie Kelly's girls would not have that. They were in attendance at her execution and rushed the hangman and took the body of their beloved mistress and carried her through the streets back to the Maiden Tower where they locked the doors and observed a wake. Now, there is a play called Darkie Kelly's Wake that I don't know a whole lot about. It appears to be relatively new. I bet it's super fun. We should check it out. The authorities, though, did not like this one bit, obviously. And so they followed and broke down the door. Of Darkie Kelly's Maiden Tower. It's just, sorry. <laughs> this is just reminding me of, of Jesus. <laughs> of the Jesus's story. Of Jesus's story. Oh, the sorry. Jesus. <laughs> oh, the Jesus. <laughs> of like the passion. Passion of the Christ. I mean, yeah. Sure. A little bit. Well, yeah, because they had they they stole his body off yeah. of the cross and then they brought it to a hole. So what we're saying <laughs> is Darkie <laughs> Kelly is not unchristlike. Correct. Thank you. And authorities were pissed, and they tried to break it down. There you go. Same thing. <laughs> but it gets a little different now, but, like, up and until then, then, I'm with you. And then the angel Gabriel comes. <laughs> no, oh, kidding. so it is the same. No. <laughs> uh, so when the police broke into the Maiden Tower, they were met with, like, mass hysteria. All the sex workers that worked for Darkie Kelly were screaming and swinging and ready to go. Mm. They were fighting tooth and nail to keep these people from taking Darkie Kelly's body back, which eventually they did. They tried to take it to one cemetery to be buried, and they were turned down, so they ended up taking it to a third. I believe it's called Marion Cemetery, but nobody's 100% sure. And sadly, all the the girls were overpowered, and 13 of the sex workers were carted off to jail. Mm. In the process of this raid, the police happened to look up into the vaults of the Maiden Tower, which would have been structures in the ceiling, kind of like a in like an archway of the ceiling. And when they did, what they saw was a little bit surprising. The Dublin private gazetteer said, quote, five bodies of murdered gentlemen were found, one of whom was the body of the son of Surgeon Tucky, whose whereabouts had been unknown. Now, Surgeon Tucky's son had gone rather famously missing and was never seen again. Well, until that moment. And then, oh, there he was. Again, there is no evidence that Darkie Kelly herself murdered any of these men, hmm. but their bodies were found in her establishment. And she did own it. And so she probably knew they were stuck up there in the rafters. What exactly her involvement was in all the crimes, we'll probably never know. But one thing is for sure, 
Darkie Kelly was a woman, and so she was expected to pay. Right. A side note, I do struggle with what to call the police in this episode. I sometimes use authorities. From here on out, I'm going to use police. Right, police didn't, weren't, no, they didn't they exist. No, they didn't. In this episode, we're going to use the word police for, like, use ease of use. Today in Ireland, um, they're called the Garda. And before that, they were police or, like, the Constabulary Command. But history only takes us back to about the 1830s. And prior to that, there isn't much record of what I should be calling any authority short of the sheriff. There was a sheriff, but I don't know what the sheriff's men were really supposed to be called. So we're using police. Don't come at me for not calling them the Garda. I know that's what they are in Ireland right now, but that wasn't the case back then. Speaking of sheriffs, I bet you're wondering who exactly Simon Luttrell was and how he got himself involved in this whole strange affair. And that is a matter of bookkeeping. You see, Simon Luttrell was the first Earl of Carhampton, but his son Henry was the second Earl of Carhampton. However, in public records, they were both simply referred to as Lord Carhampton. Okay. And they both have some pretty shocking records. While it was certainly Simon who brought the occult element into this case, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, it was Henry Luttrell who did the rest. And we know this through the cunning use of lots and lots of newspapers. In fact, two relatively famous newsmen of the time used this case that I'm about to lay out to fuel their incredibly public feud. After Darkie Kelly was executed, her brothel was passed down to a woman named Maria Llewellyn. There are many sources that refer to Maria as Darkie's sister, and she may well could have been. We don't have any genealogy on either woman, so who's to say? But she also would have been referred to as Darkie's sister-in-kind because of their profession. Either way, Maria ran the Maiden Tower for a time, and during her tenure there, she did in fact cater to Lord Carhampton, the second, Henry Luttrell. But there seems to be a lot going on in brothels at this time, and since they aren't super legal in the United States now, and none of us were alive in the 1760s, at least I don't think. Mm, I wasn't. We don't really have a frame of reference. So, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about brothels and the culture of sex work in 18th century Dublin before we move forward? Okay. Uh, so, brothels in the 1700s around Dublin were all very different. Some were actually well-known businesses, as we just talked about. The Maiden Tower would have mm-hmm. been, yeah. And uh, were beautifully decorated inside, some of them, because mm-hmm. they'd have all the money to mm-hmm. do so. Others were hidden within other businesses, like a restaurant or a bakery or a retail shop. Like some, some had like the facade of being like a, I don't know, just a, a pub, like a regular pub. But then, yeah. like inside, it was like, oh no, oh, this is not a pub. <laughs> oh my! I like that it was maybe a bakery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, after 1751, in order to legally run a brothel or any place that was fun but could <laughs> cause some moral trouble, anything fun, yeah, <laughs> you needed a license. So in order to not have to, like, get a license and, like, who knows how much it costs to, like, pay the government to have one, many brothel owners kept it pretty quiet and they would just, like, Just don't tell. Yeah, just don't tell. Um, And a lot of these brothels were owned by women, which was, like, one way that a woman could be self-sufficient as well. Um, At the time, many saw sex workers who were all women uh, were viewed as sexual temptations temptresses who threatened modern society and corrupted crime. They lacked influence, and their profession meant that they were often ignored and overlooked in the criminal justice system. That's still the case. Yep. 
Beyond, Fresh workers are still the less dead, which we've talked about before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Beyond this, many in Dublin society adhered to traditional gender roles and male violence was often widely tolerated. Sex workers or, uh, or courtesans were also seen as a threat to these roles due to their financial independence and yeah. the fact that no man was legally responsible for them. Well, it was also a thing back then where it was said that men had this, like, fire in them and they just mm-hmm. needed to fuck a lot of women. Yeah. And so prostitutes were a necessary evil. So they oh, wouldn't be yeah. violent to their wives mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't do terrible things if they could just go and have sex with a bunch of prostitutes. Right. And people were like, makes sense. Yeah, I buy yeah, that. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. good. But then a lot of the more religious side of people were also like, please don't do that. That's don't, horrible you not do that? morally we, wrong. We hate that. Yeah. Can't believe these women are doing that, right, husband? And he's like, <laughs> he's like oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Am I beating you today? No, yeah. it's because I spent the night in the brothel. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> you better thank that woman. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, like, <laughs> now the sentence doesn't make sense here, but it's fine. Like widows, sex workers did not have a clear place in society. <laughs> As a result, they were often looked at with suspicion as there were no one as there was no one in charge of them nor was there anyone to ensure that they were staying in their place. Because of this, sex workers were often the targets of attacks. Oh, yeah, I talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. It yeah. this pretty pretty awful. Yeah. Another interesting fact is that it was against the law for men to physically assault women, spouses or otherwise, so you could take them to court like women could take yeah. Take their husbands. And we are going to see that soon. Mm-hmm. However, each assault was treated like its own case, meaning the court uh, wasn't considering that this might be the man's second or third offense, so the punishments weren't severe. This made things worse for women who found just keeping quiet of their abuse was easier. For sex workers, it was the same. Uh, though they might be heard in court, it didn't stop their abuse from happening, and most of the time only made things worse. Oh, I hate that. But Holly found yeah. me a fun fact this week that I looked more into. Oh, good. Tell me. From tell 17, them more. <laughs> well, you told, you told I know, me that. But- From 1757 to 1795, there was a catalog of all the sex workers in London during the period called Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies. <laughs> the Covenant Garden? Covent. That was Covent. It's Covent. Okay. Covent Garden Ladies. I know. Mm. I want to say Covenant. I want to say it too. It feels but better. it's Covent. Oh, yeah. Man. Covent Garden ladies. Um, so obviously this is London, but you know, who knows? There was probably the shit happening everywhere at this time. Yeah, it's like a menu. It's so funny. Yeah. Each imprint general, generally listed more than 120 sex workers at work in and around Covent Garden and the West End, giving their address, ages, and chief attributes. <laughs> Oh, my God. At around two or three shillings per copy, the pocketbook was aimed chiefly at the middle class audience. So, yeah, so this little publication had, you know, around 120 each issue of these sex workers, and it gave you all the information that you could possibly need. It was filthy. Yeah. It was like scrolling through, like, (laughs) Match.com. Except for some really graphic facts about Mm -hmm. vaginas. So... I pulled a couple. <laughs> I hope you pulled the one that I really want you to say. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I pulled a couple. All right. I can maybe find some more. All right. So um, what's funny is, is that in all of these um, editions, they like take out, they like hide their names a little bit. So like this one is Mrs. and it's P 
underscore GE. So like it's probably Mrs. Page or, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. But they're like hiding their identity don't somehow. Tell. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it was funny that they're still doing that. <laughs> so this one is uh, Mrs. Page, number 26, Upper Newman Street. Oh. And then there's this cute little line. Come, thou goddess, fair and free with the sweet simplicity. And then it goes on to write, the above two lines are highly descriptive of Mrs. P, who, for ease, freedom, and simplicity, is scarcely to be matched among the whole sisterhood, besides which her beauty is by no means inconsiderable. (laughs) She is about 20, has been near five years in business, and has had tolerable fortune. Tolerable fortune. Her features are good except her mouth. Oh, no. Which is a little too wide, especially when she laughs, which is pretty often. (laughs) Those who are inclined to mirth will find her to be a good companion. Inclined to mirth. Without the least tincture of blasphemy, she is not of a mercenary disposition, yet she accepts one pound one. But rather than lose a customer, she will put up with half the sum. So it's just like she got a big mouth, but like. You could haggle with her. She's been not nice. She's young. She's pretty. She's got a big mouth. She's been in the business a while. She knows what she's doing. But like you could also get her for less. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. Miss M underscore E. Miss May is kind of what I think it's. Okay. Number one, Charles Street, Newman Street. I just love that it's like on this corner. Here's their address. (laughs) The corner of. No, this wouldn't be streetwalkers. These would be women who entertained you in an establishment, No, I, right? Yeah, I know. So it's like number one. So like that's their room yeah. too is like. Yeah, no, if you were a streetwalker, yeah. you didn't get to be in this book. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Only uh, ladies get advertised in a menu. Yes. Such is the power of good nature that it can stand in the place of the other requisites usually expected to be found in the followers of the mystery of Venus. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Beauty, which is arcanum, though the cosmetics which adulterated are, is generally looked upon as the first and chief requisite, and next to it an agreeable conversation. Here, however, is the reverse of the of the medal. Oh no! For Miss May has nothing to boast of in point of beauty. Oh no, Miss she, May! As she has put a middling face with large features, a coarse hand and arm, and in stature short of and clumsy. Poor woman. She has I know, nothing that's going awful. for her. So much for her person. Oh, man. Next, there's more. Oh, good. <laughs> As to her conversation, she is ignorant itself. Oh, no. Yet, good nature has forced enough to bewitch and to continue the spell over those whom it has once bound. Okay. Her age is about 19. And her favors may be had on very moderate terms. Oh, no. She is an excellent bedfellow, being fond of the sport, and is from the country. So she's just like (laughs) an ugly-ass country girl that just likes to fuck. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, Miss May. Think think more kindly of yourself, Miss May. I know. Well, this is what others think. This is a reviewer. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Like. So when you sleep with someone, they're going to review you in print. I know. But imagine? Hateful. So gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just pulled those two. So my, <laughs> my favorite one 
this is so wild to me, is Miss Clickamp of number two York Street near Middlesex Hospital, and who is described as, quote, one of the finest, fattest figures as fully furnished for fun and frolic as fertile fancy ever formed. That's amazing. Fortunate for the true lovers of fat should fate throw them into possession of such full-grown beauties. Oh. Yeah. So there's more of that anyway. Yeah. But that, that like, <laughs> that phrase is ridiculous to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So many Fs. <laughs> Anyway, that's so funny. So yeah, so that's uh that was a fun find. Yeah, Thank what you a for that. you can you can buy it too. You can buy yeah. Harris's book of Co- Convent Garden Ladies mm-hmm. or whatever if you really want to read the whole thing. Yeah, <sighs> there's a lot more I probably don't need in my life. But anyway, so <laughs> we have skipped ahead in time a little bit, and now we have landed on April fourth, seventeen eighty eight. For you see, this is Henry Luttrell, Simon Luttrell's son. Mm. So it would be a little bit later in time. I think this is um, 1888. I want to say police are now a thing. Like, there's an act. This is 1788. 1788. I know. Maybe. Okay. See, the first notice I got of police was, like, 1830. Okay. But I don't know. You could be right. I couldn't find anything. This is April 4th, 1788. Henry Luttrell asks Maria Llewellyn, who, remember, is the new proprietor of the Maiden's Tower, to get him a virgin, preferably a girl around the age of 13... to have his way with. Now, there are many reasons why a horrible man like Henry Luttrell might have done this, but one of the leading suspicions is that he had found himself cursed with a sexually transmitted infection, or what we called venereal disease. Oh. Yep. At the time, there were some rather interesting opinions on the diseases of the nether regions. And if it was well known that you had one, you could find yourself locked up or dead. People were sometimes apparently executed for having them because you could spread them. And so people were pretty eager to clear that shit up quietly. Mm -hmm. Didn't really really want anyone knowing you had that. Um, And I don't think there was a lot of protection against them. You found a little bit, right? Yeah. The only thing that they thought would be a condom, which condoms back then were um, lamb intestines yep. that they called lamb skin, which they still use today in some countries. No, oh, thank you. Like probably third world. No, you can buy them at oh, like you can Walmart. Yeah. You can't see Leslie's face, but it is. I think she's going to throw up everywhere. I'm sorry. What is this like? I'm sorry. <laughs> if you don't want something, um, like latex synthetic in your synthetic. body. Yeah. If you don't want a like latex products, there are alternatives. It's like sausage casing. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, but that's so thin. I yeah. mean, I guess the lambskin's probably I mean, thicker. Get get you one of them. I don't know what to say. God, I am grossed out. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that about. So, yeah, and, and then, but those things were not like her face is so mortified. <laughs> I, can't. I can't. Not a lot of people had them either. It wasn't no. like something common that you could buy just about anywhere. No, but at this point in time, it was definitely more known, like right. and used more often. Um, because in like the church was like angry about it. Right, of too. course. Um, and then the other thing too that I found, because I was trying to find like crazy things that they would do. And the church the, would be mad because it prevented pregnancy and they yes. don't want you to do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also that you are having sex for fun. Why would you like, ever? Why, 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 why would you ever? are you trying to do this? Yeah. Um, but it was supposed to specifically help um, from 
uh, sex workers because the women are the ones that are carrying them, clearly. It's Obviously, just it's the women. It's just them. It's not the men. Um, also, all STDs or STIs mm-hmm. were just syphilis. <laughs> so That's they so would, funny. So if you had, like, gonorrhea or they'd anything like, else, they'd no. be like, well, we'll just treat you the same way. You that have mild treat, syphilis. Yeah. Let me, like, shove something into your yes. urethra. Yeah, that was, like, their uh, only – and so, obviously, until they got, like, penicillin, they had, like, no idea what to do. Syphilis is also treated with mercury, so people were probably just crazy all over town if that's they, how they yeah. were being treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, they were like, this isn't working, but it's the only thing we can guess. Well, I could see how you would also probably rather die than undergo some of those things, and mm-hmm. then there were people – like, not to mention, if you really did have syphilis, you just, like, slowly rotted like a leper. Right. Pretty well a nightmare. We've talked about the no-nose club before. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. So syphilis is no joke. But anyway, um, one of the main suspected cures at the time, this is like an underground type thing, not what you would get from, say, a doctor, was to have sex with a young virgin. Oh, that'll clear it right up. Cure it right away. Now, this could have been why Henry Luttrell was looking for a little girl to rape. It also could have been because he wanted to avoid the dreaded STIs in the first place. Men of this time worshipped youth and virginity, not that they don't anymore, because it was a guarantee that you wouldn't end up with any diseases. So they thought, well, I'll just fuck kids because then I won't get sick. I hear this. Do you think this was also left over from, like, the uh, like paganism? Like, any kind of ritual like that? No, too? pagans don't do that. I just didn't know, like, the... Like some weird subset of them. No. There. No, okay. this is just people saying like, hey, they they are pure, so take some of their purity and it will cure you. Yeah, I mean like we get that. Yeah, but <laughs> obviously it didn't this work is very well. fucking terrible. Yeah. I know. But the uh, another another thing that should be mentioned is that it wasn't uncommon for brothel madams to auction off a young girl's virginity to the highest bidder at the time. A lot of times this would be young girls whose mothers were working at the establishment Mm -hmm. or whose mothers were brothel owners themselves. I will refer you to the rather famous case of Charlotte Hayes, whose mother was a whorehouse owner and whose virginity was sold in excess of 9,000 pounds in the 1740s. (gasps) And that kind of cash is nothing to joke about back then. It isn't now either, but that's insane. Wow. Because of the high asking price of Charlotte's virginity, she was set up for life as a girl in the highest demand. Is that still terrifying abuse of a little girl? Of course it is. Because she was like 13, of course, that's when they would do this. Yeah. Um, But her life was never going to be one that didn't include some of that. So one can argue that at least she was very well provided for after that. Charlotte was someone who was like catered to by wealthy men and given anything she ever wanted in life. Mm-hmm. So I guess the exchange was one for the other. Not not what happens to all little girl virgins that were sold, obviously, but that's just an example. So either way, Henry Luttrell wanted a little girl, and Maria Llewellyn delivered in the form of a girl named Mary Neal. On the 4th of April, Mary Neal was sent from her home to deliver a letter to the Maiden Tower. When she arrived, she was snatched away into a room where Henry Luttrell had his way with her. Afterwards, Mary Neal ran home screaming. Her parents reported the assault to the police, or whoever you report to, and they immediately arrested Maria Llewellyn. Hmm. Wah, 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 huh? Yeah. You must find yourself pretty confused right now. They didn't arrest Henry Luttrell? No, they did not. Fun fact, in Ireland in the 18th century, the legal age of consent was 10 years old. Okay. And sex work was not illegal. So by his account, Henry Luttrell had had sex legally with a young prostitute. 
Right. Which was all the court needed to exonerate him. It should be noted that Henry Letchell was not only a member of the nobility, member, Earl of Carhampton, mm -hmm. but also his sister was married to King George III's brother. Mm. He was extremely well-connected. So no one's arresting that guy. But why did they arrest the madam? I'll get to that in a second. Maria Llewellyn was charged as an accessory to rape, a felony crime, and the whole shebang goes to court. They said she provided the young girl and the place for it to happen. And she's the one who took this little girl, um, like, against her will. Henry Luttrell just thought he got a prostitute. Is it the family that's going after her? Or is it the, the town, like the city? The family just wanted somebody to face charges okay. for this. So the answer to that was the legal system said we have to charge this brothel owner. That's who's responsible. Because technically in this position, legally, Maria Llewellyn is who is said to be responsible. Because the uh, Henry Luttrell just asked her for something. He said, I right. want a and young prostitute. And she just got a girl. And they're, what they're saying is she got a girl off the street, not a girl who was already working for her. She got an unsuspecting young girl. She kidnapped her and had this guy have sex with her. Oh, uh, okay. That is what they are saying. But did this girl, but you were you were just saying, did this girl get like all that money? No, that's a different girl. Oh, that's, okay, I'm sorry. That was just an example of someone's selling their virginity. Okay. Another example is one that is not sold for tons and tons of money, but, you know, like apprehended or maybe the right. brothel owner saw, saw more money. The price on Mary Neal's head was never, or on her virginity, I should say, was never stated. So we don't know okay. who made what, probably because... Her family is saying that she was abducted and raped, and so she wouldn't have made a single cent. Right. But there are also those, and Maria Llewellyn included, who claim that Mary Neal was already working as a sex worker and that she simply did her job. So now the cases between the Neals, who say, you took our child and had her raped, and Mar uh, Maria Llewellyn, who said, no, this girl worked for me, and she did her job. Okay. So maybe they're also, I mean, so much is wrong with it, but maybe they're oh, also God. mad that, like, she maybe didn't get paid. Maybe. Anything <laughs> is possible. who knows how, like, aggressive this guy was. In a post-attack examination, it was discovered that Mary Neal also had some STIs. So the same ones that Henry Luttrell had, or same one, I should say. Mm -hmm. So, but again, like you said, they're all syphilis, so it doesn't yeah. matter. One can assume that either she got it from Henry or she already had it uh -huh. because she was already engaged in sex work. Okay. Now, you and I both know, because we live in a time of modern medicine, that there is no way Mary Neal would have developed visible symptoms of an STI the second her attacker pulled out. It takes a little time. Mm. So it's probably safe to say that she had it already from one unfortunate event or another. Does that mean that she was a prostitute? No. Tons of women got raped all the time back then. But when did she get checked, too? It says, like, pretty much right after her attack. Okay. But I'm not, I was not given a list of gruesome symptoms. Again, this is like newspaper articles is all we got. And okay. so it's what they could print in a newspaper. I need to know more, Holly. I know. But I'm going to give you a little, a better, a slightly better window, I'm sorry, into this in a second. Now, this whole thing is absolutely terrible. A man is getting off scot-free for raping a little girl, and a bunch of people are sitting around discussing whether this little girl wanted it or not. She didn't. I don't care if she actually was a sex worker at the time. There's no way this was her choice. We now know that it possibly couldn't be. She's 13. You can't make that decision. But because of the high profile of the man who did the raping and was not on trial, this case was really fucking big news. 
and it was picked up by two local newsmen locked in a feud. And those men were Francis Higgins, who owned the Freeman's Journal, run by Dublin Castle, and John McGee, owner of the Patriot-run Dublin Evening Press. Oh, good. Right. Okay. So you perfect John. So here's a little bit about them both. Hold on. This is on actual paper because I was feeling old-timey this week. Uh, So Francis Higgins is a man who is known as the Sham Squire. Love it. Yeah, fun. A squire is a, quote, man of high social standing who lives on an estate in a rural area, especially the chief landowner in the area. Francis Higgins is referred to as, quote, a Dublin celebrity. Higgins. Higgins. Who climbed the uh, the social ladder there rather underhandedly and in kind of a dirty way. So first, as a young man, Francis Higgins forged documents claiming that he held property. So he just faked being a rich guy. Seeing this um, young property-holding man as an excellent prospect for his daughter, a wealthy Catholic merchant ordered his daughter to marry Francis Higgins. But soon after the wedding, however, it became clear that the merchant and his daughter had been deceived, and it was too late. Francis Higgins already had her money. And her. Now, when this girl discovers that her husband is a total fraud, she flees his custody and then dies immediately afterwards. Some reports say that she became so distraught that she died, which we know is not a thing. Others simply state it. Either way, we know that um, an otherwise healthy person can't just, like, distraught themselves to death, so something bad happened to that girl. Her father then took legal action against Frances Higgins, who was jailed for assault. Higgins, who wouldn't be held back by a thing like that, though, um, went through his sentence and then found himself some more jobs and a few more women, including taking over a local pub and the local pub owner's wife. He somehow conned his way then into being a lawyer, which you need a license for, and he had no education, so I don't know how he did that. So he was actively practicing law. But while it paid money, uh, being a lawyer back then wasn't as, like, attention-grabbing and bougie Mm -hmm. as he wanted to be. And what he really wanted was the attention of Dublin Castle. So what he decided to do was get himself in possession of a newspaper. He started working, worming his way into the Freeman's Journal by gaining an editorial position. Again, this guy, not super illiterate. He, like, learned as he went. And eventually... An admirable quality. An admirable quality, indeed. (laughs) Unless you're a total con man like this guy. So eventually, he worked his way up in the ranks until he was able to buy the whole operation in 1783. Man, how do people do that? I don't know. Some people just have so much confidence, it kills me. I know, me too. (laughs) And Dublin Castle, who was desperate to control the public information at this time, did take notice of Francis Higgins, and they landed him squarely in their pockets, so I suspect the Crown was paying for a lot of everything going on at the Freeman's Journal. Okay. Because they wanted control of the press, as I said before. Uh So, this let—and Francis Higgins has no morals whatsoever, or no loyalties whatsoever, I should say, so he just printed whatever the castle wanted. This was a stark contrast to the paper's original purpose— which was to promote and work for the Irish independence. Mm -hmm. So Francis Higgins, however, had, like I said, no loyalties and just flipped the whole paper around. And later he would go on to work for the castle as a spy. Mm. Yeah. So on the other side, we have his rival, a newspaper man named John McGee. John McGee ran the Dublin Dublin Evening Post, a paper committed to the welfare of Irish citizens, and went after truth at any cost, even if it meant rallying against local authorities. So... There was police at some point in time because John McGee um, spoke out against them and then they put him on trial, trial for libel. So every time John McGee would come out with an accusation against the castle or the authorities, they would say he was lying and put him on the stand. Hmm. John McGee was pretty staunchly anti-castle, um, so he was in trouble with the law a lot. And John McGee hated Francis Higgins. 
He hated no one more than Francis Higgins, so the case of Mary Neal became a special interest of John McGee's, sensing that it was a fabrication in some ways to bury the affairs of a spurious Irish nobility, and he was right. So, what had happened is, Francis Higgins, the sham squire who works for the castle, originally reports this case for the castle so that their guy, Lord Carhampton, looks good, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But then John McGee sees it and he goes, I'm going to take the, op- the opposition and I'm going to make Mary Neal, this young girl, look very, very innocent. So it's everywhere in the news at that point in time. But how do we get Darkie Kelly into this? Because that's who we're talking about. Well, John McGee pulled a stunt out of his newspaper sleeve that would forever link the whole sordid affair back together. He printed a forged letter in the post to Maria Llewellyn, signed by her sister, Darkie Kelly. Mm. Now, it has been su- suggested that this signature from the well-known and not to mention long-dead Darkie Kelly was to indicate that Maria Llewellyn was a prostitute, which I'm using the language of the time, and she was in line with a murderer. This, therefore, makes her capable of abducting an innocent young girl and setting her up to be raped. But... History is a washing machine that blends things together of all shapes and kinds. And so now, Darkie Kelly is attached to the whole thing forever. And since the legend of Darkie Kelly was already established, the involvement of, quote, Lord Carhampton was simply absorbed into her story and not the other way around. Does any of that make sense? It's wild. So now we've gotten almost all of the elements of this story accounted for except for one. How the hell did did the devil make his way into this. Because remember, she sacrificed her baby to the devil because she had an affair with the sheriff. Right. We see how someone had sex with some member of that family and how that was a sordid affair. But, like, where did Simon come into play? Okay. So Simon, Simon Luttrell does bring in the devil. Now, even though the, in life, Darkie Kelly had nothing to do with Simon Luttrell, they did exist at the same time. And so when he was... She was linked to a Lord Carhampton. It was just assumed to be Simon because that would have lined up more. And if you think Henry was bad, well, buckle up. Simon Luttrell, the first Earl of Carhampton, Sheriff of Dublin, and we'll soon find out why, dubbed the notorious King of Hell, was an entitled, foul-tempered, horribly behaved man, which doesn't align you with the devil unless you are also one of the founding members of Dublin's infamous Hellfire Club. Mm -hmm. Now... The Hellfire Club was a secret society composed of noble and very well-off gentlemen only who wanted to behave badly, very badly. At the time, it was like sinfully, but what they really meant was like they wanted to hurt people and rape women. Mm. That was their like main thing. The Dublin Hellfire Club is influenced by Hellfire Clubs in London, and they go back to um, people who really just wanted to mock the church. They were kind of, the originals were kind of similar in purpose to like modern Satanists where they were doing things kind of backwards to mock like Christianity. Not these guys. These guys just genuinely wanted like pain and chaos exacted upon other people. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to use their wealth to be able to do that and get away with it all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is very similar to lots of other secret societies. And Leslie and I already have more than one episode on secret societies planned. So I'm not going to go into the Hellfire Club in detail. But I will tell you that Simon Luttrell was a big deal in it. There is a painting in the National Gallery of the members of the original, and Simon Luttrell is right there in the middle, so you can find him. And I'll give you a few examples of what these guys did. 
First of all, they love to burn all their locations down. They set fires like everywhere. So saying that they set a fire for the devil, that kind of thing, goes hand in glove with members of the Hellfire Society. Mm. It is easy to see where that came from. So first of all, um, I'm not going to name a lot of names because, again, I don't want to get into the whole history. But one of their legends is that they frequ- they had these, like, lodges. One of them is a very famous, I think it's called the Hunting Lodge of Montpelier Hill. It's one of the more famous ones. That was one of their meeting places. And they would bring in sex workers to these parties and they would, you know, do what they would with them. A lot of times it was said that if you were hired to go to a Hellfire Club party, about a 50-50 chance that you would ever get out mm. as a sex worker. Oh, damn. Yeah, they didn't they didn't do nice things to them all the time. Yeah. And one time they thought it'd be really fun to bring a young woman in. And as soon as she got into the hall, they stuffed her in a barrel and they sealed up the barrel. Then through like the hole in the top, they filled it with like grain alcohol, lit it on fire, and rolled it down a hill. That's what these guys did. They also would go out in groups under cover of darkness and snatch women off the street and rape them, sometimes in their own home. They were very well known for doing this. And in fact, a few times they were caught by the police because rape was a crime at that point in time. Mm -hmm. But it was always able to be buried because these unscrupulous men were well connected. Well connected, yeah. I mean, once in a while you'd see a report, but like again, these you you knew it was hellfire men who did this. They were wealthy young lords who would like pull women off the street, sometimes yeah. into their own homes. Like they would catch them at their door trying to get in and they would like push them into their house and rape them in their own home. I hate it. Yeah, I hate it too. Um, they also burned cats alive. Okay. For fun. That's so they're all serial killers. Yeah, they're real great. That's something they like to do. They also were very famous for burning servants alive at their party. They would like to drench them in grain alcohol and light them on fire. Yeah, so they're horrible, horrible men. And the devil part comes into it because their original tenets was like, we're here to mock the church. And a lot of times they would be like, we are holding a mass for Satan. We are Satan's men. But this was more of a performance than anything. They weren't really worshiping a devil. It's just what they claimed. But, you know, if you're a bunch of wealthy men who are lighting people on fire and raping young women, I don't know, we might believe you're in line with the devil. Sounds pretty aggressive and obvious. Now, while he was involved in the Hellfire Club, that's not actually why Simon Luttrell was called the King of Hell. Um, it is called He was called that because of an area in which he did the most damage. Now, the reason we refer, and I did this in the very beginning, to areas in which, which most of this action occurred as the within the Flags of Copper Alley mm-hmm. is because outside the Flags of Copper Alley was an area people called Hell. Okay. Like Hell's Kitchen? Not as nice, but yes. Well, not as nice More now. like the hell in, say, the Jack the Ripper stories. Right. So this was an area that was totally depressed. So here you would find a lot of prostitutes that were not mentioned in that book. We call them sex workers now. Again, some of this is language of the time. I apologize. And you would find, you know, thieves and poverty. And this is where he would go to be extremely violent to people. Right. Um, and engage in the darker side of life. And he did it so often and with such vigor that he became known as the king of hell. Mm. Yeah. So he's like no better than Jack the Ripper. No. He might be worse yeah. because Jack the Ripper might have been multiple people. He might have been Jack the Ripper. Who knows? Might, yeah. Shit. Yeah. Simon Luttrell was so bad, in fact, 
that uh, an epic poem was actually written about him called the Diabolad. This was, uh, and, and the subtitle is, Dedicated to the Worst Men in His Majesty's Dominions. Now, in this poem, the author, a man named William Combe, claims that when Satan retires his throne, Simon Luttrell will be appointed to take his place. And now this is something that was like popular reading of the day. It would have been like in pamphlets and stuff distributed all over the place. So that's how much they said if you were like um, maligned in prose, like if poems were written about how horrible you were, that was like a huge attack on your character of the time. So hmm. that is Simon Luttrell and how he got confused and the whole thing got very jumbled up. So there was a Darkie Kelly, Dorcas as it were, and she did get executed in a manner most foul, but not how you might have heard. But we're not done yet. Because it wouldn't be a St. Patrick's Day episode of We Will Be Dead without another installment of Leslie's Leprechaun Lessons. Today is your lucky day. Yeah! So let's have a little fun after all of that sordid history. Leslie, what do you got for us this year? All right, all right. Um, so we have a leprechaun lesson quiz. Remember, <gasps> I was giving lessons several times now, and I promised there'd be a quiz. Oh, man. I hope I do okay. All right, Holly. Yes. And and our fiends, you could, you know. Answer, answer. all. Answer, yeah. I will give you some time to answer. <laughs> True or false? Leprechauns are fairies. True. Fiends? I don't know. <laughs> if you said true, you'd be right. Hooray! <laughs> Holly. Yes. What color are leprechauns? Like their clothing. Green. You said their clothing. Yeah. Red. Red. Oh. <laughs> the right answer is red. Most of you probably said green. According to... I said both for the people. Yes. According to Legends and Stories of Ireland from 1831, the fairies dress in red. The author, Irish novelist Samuel Lover, describes them as wearing a red squared cut coat, richly laced with gold, and a cocket hat. Mm. Mm. Fancy. It wasn't till uh, later that they'd start wearing green, and it's believed that um, they started to put them in green clothes to kind of like, uh, to connect them with the shamrocks. I love it. Yeah. That's adorable. Holly. Yes. What profession are most leprechauns? Shoemakers? Yes. Like John Dowling? Yes. <laughs> he was a leprechaun. He was a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not tack that on? Everything else is like jumbled up into a ball. Well, right? What do female leprechauns look like? This is a trick question. Are there no female leprechauns? Yay! That's right. Much like dwarves. Yeah. <laughs> Fiends, how are you doing? <laughs> are, you, are you acing this? Uh, two more. What does the word leprechaun mean? Tiny shoe man. <laughs> no. Fiends, do you know? Well, you're probably right. Oh, man! It comes from the Middle Irish word. Oop, I meant to look this oh, up. Oh, no. Uh, Luco, Lucopon? Lucopon? I don't know. Sure. It it's not in front of me. I can't help you. <laughs> small body. Little shoe man. I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Holly. <laughs> Last one. In what year? This is a multiple choice. Oh, man. Lay it on me. In what year did the leprechaun become the University of Notre Dame's mascot? Was it A, 1959? 
B. 1960. C. 1966. Damn it, Leslie. Or D. 1971. A. It was Beans. If you said C, you'd be right. Good 1966. Job, Beans. The mascot was original was originally a terrier, but in 1960, a student walked on the field during a football game dressed as a leprechaun. <laughs> And then it became an annual thing, and five years later, it officially became the mascot. They're just like, we like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and that was my leprechaun lesson. So you were telling the story of Samuel. Uh, how do you say his last name? Letcher. Simon Luttrell. Uh, si- yeah, yes. Simon Letchell. Sorry. And um, in the poem that was written. Yes. How'd you pronounce it? Di- Di- Diabolad. Di- Diabolad. Okay. Diab- Diabolad. Maybe. Oh, okay. So this other word came up. The so one from like 1600. There's another one too. Um, It's like Diabolic. D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K. Okay. So I don't know. But this says um, that Diabolics are lovers, is lovers of a vampire. Oh. So like uh, they were originally humans who were later turned into vampires. Oh. I don't know. So I was just like reading. I was like, oh, is there? So it still had some kind of satanic vibes. For you sure. Know? All the Satan vibes. So I was just trying to look up the word to be like, what is she saying? It's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-A-D. Okay. Which is why I said an, a long I in the beginning. So it would be diaboliad, like diabolical, but with I-A-D on the end. Okay. Not diaboliad. <laughs> I gotcha. Oh, okay. A poem or other work about the devil, a tale, a tale of the devil's doings. Yeah, so that okay. would be why they put, roped in Simon Luttrell with him. Well, okay. he did do a lot of horrible things, and he was pretty evil. He prob and maybe he did kill some babies. Who knows? That's in line with his bullshit. Mm-hmm. He did not kill Darkie Kelly's baby in the woods, basically. Gotcha. Okay. That was a, a wild story. I hope any of it made sense. It did. It there was so much information. There's just, like you said, there were three different stories yeah. kind of pulled together. And then they were just all blended together to create this one. I think, so let me understand this, because I think you told me this um, when we decided to do this story. Mm-hmm. So Darkie got taken to, she she was arrested and then executed. Yes. And then and then they, but she was executed for a crime that she didn't commit. And then they found the bodies. Uh, she was executed for a crime she va- she may have committed. Okay. I mean, they know that that all I can see, all I have is records right. that say she killed Le- Leprechaun, maybe Shoemaker, John Dowling okay. on St. Patrick's Day. Okay. And that's what she had been arrested for. So okay. there must have been some kind of evidence that she did that. Okay. What it was, we do not know. Okay. She was also a brothel owner, so they could have been blaming somebody else's misdeeds on her, as right. we have seen happens. Mm-hmm. So that's what she was killed for, technically. Okay. And then when they went back to the Maiden Tower, when the girls were trying to give her a wake, that's when they found the bodies of, like, five other men. Okay. And that's why a lot of places you will see Darkie Kelly listed as Ireland's first serial killer. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Toast? Toast. All right. So, who would you like to toast this week, Leslie? Well, definitely Darkie. Yes, to Darkie Kelly. She's got the best name. Who does have an awesome name and for whom the legend was formed. So, cheers to Darkie Kelly. And who else? Uh, Mary Neal. Yep. 
who in one way or another was a victim because she was 13. Yeah. So cheers to Mary Neal. We hope that her life got better after this. Cheers. And we have a patron this week. Oh, we do? We do. Who's our patron? Amber Barrett. Amber Barrett. Yes, she's a best fiend forever. Ooh, thank you, Amber Barrett. Best fiend forever. We love you and cheers. Cheers, cheers. And, uh, and cheers to some of those some of those ladies in the ladybook. Oh, yes, the ladybook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who is yours, Hollies? Miss Clickamp of number two York Street near Middlesex Hospital. One of the finest, fattest figures as fully finished for fun and frolic as fertile fancy ever formed. Oh, my God. It's so wild. I just have to <laughs> I had to say that again and toast it. So cheers to Miss Clickamp. Cheers. And, and mine were, I think, because remember there were like letters missing in their names. Oh, yeah. So I think it was Mrs. Page and Miss May. All right. Cheers to Mrs. Page and Miss May. Yeah. One was the country girl that, that liked to get down. Girl. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, those are our, our toasts for the week. All right. Yeah. So, um. If you forgot, come see us live on YouTube on St. Patrick's Day proper, March 17th at 9 o'clock. If you are a patron, please tune into our beforehand Zoom. We're going to make some soda bread at 8 o'clock. And uh, until then, fiends, um, yes, that's all we have. And if we were a woman challenging the notions of power and trying to survive in 1760s Ireland, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. We gasp. <gasps> dun, dun, dun.